Olive Lander, including our Wyoming Catholic College students and just about everybody who comes here for vacation, loves Sinks Canyon. The natural beauty is breathtaking, and on any given day, regardless of the season of year, you can meet people hiking, rock climbing, fishing, camping, birding, and mountain biking. Next week, however, you'll be able to see some unexpected activities, processing, worshiping, and the blessing of the waters. This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College. The Blessing of the Waters is part of the Eastern Christian celebration of Theophany, the Feast of Christ's Baptism. And Theophany opens for us a new and larger understanding of time, specifically liturgical time and the liturgical calendar. Wyoming Catholic College professor Kyle Washett has reflected on these things for some time, and I asked him to tell us a bit more about Theophany and about the Blessing of the Waters. The entire Christian world first celebrated some kind of major feast uh, around January 6th. And that major feast celebrated the revelation of Christ. And that revelation included the celebration of his birth, the celebration of the Magi coming to meet him, the celebration of his encounter with Simeon and Anna in the temple, and the celebration of his baptism. And over time, that sort of separated out in different traditions along different ways, with January 6th getting different emphases. So in the Western Church now, January 6th is principally the celebration of the uh, coming of the Magi to Jesus with a nod to the baptism and the wedding at Cana. In the Armenian tradition, it's still just the celebration of Christmas straight up. And in the Byzantine and Coptic traditions, it's the celebration principally of the baptism of Christ. And one of the ways the church then celebrates the baptism of Christ, who was baptized for the sake, as we say, of consecrating the waters, not because he needed to be cleansed, but so that he could give the power of cleansing to us, we celebrate that feast by blessing all of the waters. Well, now, isn't that supposed to take place on January 6th? Uh, are we delaying here at Wyoming Catholic? We are, right? So there, there's two, in the Byzantine tradition, there's two major blessings of the waters that happen. There's one, an indoor blessing, and then one, you're supposed to go to the largest outdoor body of water you can find and bless that. And so here with Father David Anderson, we will will delay that bless outdoor blessing of the water for when the students are actually back with us, and we'll go and bless the waters of the Paposia River in Sinks Canyon, which give water to the Lander Valley. Now, how does the emphasis differ in the Latin Rite uh, as opposed to the Byzantine Catholics, or, or do they reinforce each other? Yeah, there's a great deal of reinforcement in that regard. So, As I said, originally the Feast of Epiphany or Theophany, either the showing simply or the showing of God, was a celebration of God's coming into the world. When you read the Old Testament, there's this clear idea of there's the creation, and then there's as if a second creation when God reconstitutes the material creation as he reveals his power specifically at the exodus for the sake of saving Israel. And that comes out especially in the wisdom literature. Well, that mode of meditating on God's action led the church to think, well, there's a special way then with Christ's coming into the world that we are 
reconstituting or recreating the world in a way akin to the Exodus, that there's a moment where God is going to rearrange the elements, step in and reveal himself in this powerful way and fill all creation with his glory like he did when he first created Eden. Then again, we can then look at that in different ways. That happens clearly at Christmas just by him becoming man and the stars shining and the angels singing and the Byzantine hymns for Christmas, the idea that all of the creation is brought in to receive God coming in. The earth gives a cave for him to be born in. Humanity gives a mother for him to have. The angels give him a song. But then at Epiphany, right, we focus on that in a very special way. In the West, with we, we say in the Vespers in the Western Church, on this day we celebrate three feasts. We celebrate the... Uh, coming of the Magi to Jesus, we celebrate his baptism, and we celebrate his revelation at the wedding of Cana. So since very, very ancient times, and that, that antiphon from Vespers is very, very ancient, we've kept this feast as this sort of fullness of the revelation of Christ. When we look at the Magi, this idea of creation receiving its God and God revealing himself in creation is very strong. As St. Ephraim the Syrian writes, right, the Magi were star worshippers, sun worshippers, and so when they come and by a star are taught to worship Christ, it's as if, St. Ephraim says, the Magi make the very stars and suns worship God. They're bending the cosmos to worship this baby in a manger. And they're bringing, so to speak, the history of all of Israel's oppression, all the things that the uh, pagans had taken out of Israel in their course of persecution, the incense from the temple, the golden temple instruments, all of it are sort of being brought back and presented to Israel. So this reconstitution of history and creation. In the East, we're going to see a similar thing, but this time with the focus on the baptism. This idea of God separating the waters as he did at creation, as he did the Exodus, that's going to become prominent in this image of Christ coming into the waters and filling the waters with his divine might, giving, making the waters sort of commissioning the waters to not just testify to him, but to communicate divine life at baptism. St. Athanasius, back in the 4th century, wrote in On the Incarnation that Christ came to solve our two big problems, death and ignorance. Tell us about that idea and how that relates to the Church's liturgical calendar. Athanasius writes around the time of the Council of Nicaea, either before or after, scholars debate a little bit, but it writes, why would God become man? He wants to defend against the Arian accusation, this idea that God became man. And he's got to show that there's compelling reasons for God to become incarnate. And he says, well, the reasons for God to become incarnate would be he has to fix something, and the only way he could fix it is, or the best way he could fix it, is by becoming man. And he says, well, there's two big problems that God has to fix. On the one hand, he has to fix the, the problem of permanent death. The, that our bodies are going to decay after the fall, that we'll fall and then we die, and that our souls will be forever separated from him. That, he says, is a major problem. These beings were created in the image and likeness of God, meant to share communion with him, and now they're going to get, you know, 80 years if they're lucky, and then just an eternity of death, separation. So, so that's not fitting. God needs to come and give life to this creation that's condemned to death. 
But related to this, but slightly distinct from it, is another problem facing humanity, which is the problem of ignorance. That humans were made to know God, and now they don't. Now, in fact, they think that God's, you know, a lump of rock or a golden idol or whatever the case is. They don't know God. In fact, in, in the Greek, they're a logikos, rational is the word that Athanasius uses, but logikos, or of the logos, and Athanasius makes a bit of a pun and says it is terrible that someone who is logikos never knows the logos. He might as well be an animal at that point. And so there's this huge problem where humanity spends all of its time studying, you know, rocks and sticks and, you know, occasionally the stars at best, and they don't know God. And so God needs to become man both to give life to the human race and to give the knowledge of God to the human race. So when we think then about the liturgical year, the liturgical year is kind of designed around those two focal points. Um, to get into that, I just want to give an image for the liturgical year to help us think about it. And we're going to borrow an image from Einstein. If you picture the liturgical year as this long sheet and you drop various weights on the sheet, it will curve that sheet around, as Einstein says, for the curvature of space-time. And we have this experience in our own feasts, right? When we have a wedding, the wedding's this big event that sort of curves the time before and the time after around it. We get all this getting ready for the wedding, especially intense at the wedding rehearsal, and then the honeymoon and the post-celebration of the wedding. Well, the church's feasts are like that, and the bigger the feasts that bend the year around them, the bigger the impact. And the church has said there's basically two major ways that we're going to bend the year in celebration of Christ. We're going to celebrate Christ's work of solving the dilemma of ignorance, Christ's work of revealing who God is to the human race, and that's one huge bowling ball in the church's year that bends the time around it. And we're going to celebrate Christ's work of saving us from death, which is the biggest of the bowling balls in the church year. Right? That's the Easter season. And so the whole year curves around Easter, but another way it sort of curves back as well around these feasts of Revelation, which have spread, spread out more than just January 6th. That would include... December 25th, that includes January 6th, that's even going to include uh, February 2nd, the Feast of the Presentation. And so in one way, almost the entire church year is either getting ready for Feast of Revelation, starting with Advent, and then the celebration of that, or getting ready for Easter and the celebration of that. So you've got, on the one hand, this seasons of Revelation, the dissolution to the dilemma of ignorance, and on the other hand, the season of Easter and the solution to the dilemma of death. And the only part left in the church here is what we'll call the Pentecostal season, which is where we celebrate us continuing this work. Just as Christ comes into the world, fills it with his knowledge, and then brings the world with him back into heaven with his resurrection and ascension, so too, after Pentecost, do we celebrate first the preaching of the apostles, they're going out into the world, filling it with the knowledge of God and then bringing that up into heaven with the feast of Mary's uh, falling asleep and being assumed into heaven, and then ultimately with all saints and all souls. So we've got this sort of structure around the church focused on the solution to these dilemmas and how we live that out. Now, you mentioned to me that in that, uh, in both the Latin and the Byzantine traditions, 
Christmas is not nearly as big a deal as we think it is. Is that correct? Right, right. So this is the funny thing. In the, certainly in the Byzantine tradition, but even in the Roman ceremonial, when it lists the three greatest feasts of the church year, it says they are Pascha, Epiphany, and uh, Pentecost. And in the Byzantine tradition, that's also true, that the three big feasts are Pascha, Theophany, and Pentecost, which to our ears, based on the celebration of Christmas and the rest, sounds very, very strange. Well, in one way, though, the thing to keep in mind is that first and foremost, the Feast of Feasts is Easter. Everything, every other feast in the church calendar bends around that bowling ball that's dropped into the liturgical year. And Epiphany while it's a major feast, is all for the sake of getting ready for Easter. It's preparing. Christ fills the world so he can take it up into heaven. Pentecost is the consequence of that. So it's all flowing out of Easter. Pentecost is even named from Easter 50 days after. So when we think of then what's going on with Christmas, well, Christmas is a big deal, obviously. And Christmas is part of the breaking apart of this huge celebration of God's revelation, the church originally says, well, we'll put that all on January 6th. We think that's pretty packed. We'll spread Christmas out to this part. We'll spread the presentation out to this part. We'll do this in this way. But the important point, while Christmas is a really great moment, it's not the full moment of the revelation of Christ. It's the beginning. It's the first step. That Christ comes to these shepherds in this quiet place and the angels sing. That's a major deal. But ultimately, the Magi are going to come and the entire cosmos is going to bend to recognize that. And then the Trinity is going to announce itself at his baptism. And he himself is going to promise at the wedding of Cana that he's going to not only turn water into wine, but uh, but wine into his blood and us into his life. So at some level, Epiphany is the feast where we're announcing Easter. And in fact, even liturgically, that's what's supposed to happen on Epiphany. The priest stood up, and before the internet, this was a bigger deal, and would announce the date of Easter on Epiphany. Because that's what's going on. January 6th is the full announcement of our redemption is at hand, and we're now turning to look at Easter. You know, it makes me think a little bit about a book I read years ago by um, Leighton Ford, who, was, who worked for Billy Graham, that was called Good News is for Sharing, that Christ is born in our hearts is a good thing, but good news is for sharing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In fact, Augustine has a great quote that says, if there's a kind of good that we can share without it being diminished, then we don't really have that good until we share it. And that seems to be the message of Epiphany. Christmas is the kind of good that is, as you said, meant for sharing. Now, how does the church calendar and these cycles of feasts inform what we do here at Wyoming Catholic College? Well, at some level, that's going to need to inform everything every Catholic does. That what we are devoted to doing is, since God has filled the cosmos with himself, our first job is to receive that revelation, to go out and listen to what he tells us. Listen to what he tells us in nature, in the first book. Listen to what he tells us in the tradition of the people who have thought about that encounter. And listen to what he tells us in his revelation through scripture, through the liturgy, through the continued teaching of the church. And so fundamentally, a huge part of what we do at Wyoming Catholic College is teaching our students and ourselves trying to practice 
this receiving of the revelation of God, this listening to the gift that is epiphany and theophany. But we also want to stress to them that like the apostles who were in John the Baptist who were pleased to witness Christ's baptism or the magi who witnessed Christ's uh, birth, that we don't stay there. That the entire reason for that God gives us that revelation is so that we can then take that and journey further and go up ultimately to his promised life, which is the Paschal moment, this, this moment of preparing ourselves for a vision of a land to come, which is the ultimate goal of Wyoming Catholic College, as we say in the vision statement. And then Pentecost, of course, reminds us that our job is to do both of those things, not just to receive the message, but, as we said, good news is meant for sharing, to share it with the world around us, and then to be ready to go to that promised land that we've heard whisper of. It was back in 1980 I first learned about the liturgical calendar from a Methodist clergyman at a preaching conference at a Southern Baptist church. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Well, since then, I've lived the calendar, preached based on the calendar, lectured about the liturgical year, and I'm still learning that Jesus is Lord of time and that our lives, year by year, can reflect on and reflect his blessed life continues to be a source of wonder. Well, those liturgical calendars are probably still there near the door of your local parish. If you don't have one, pick one up and put it to good use. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.